Welcome to the Functional Pelvic Health Podcast, where we bridge the gap between orthopedics, pelvic floor PT, and exercise by bringing you useful information so you can run, jump, laugh, cough, sneeze, and lift heavy, all without peeing on yourself or feeling pressure down there. Remember, this podcast is for information only and does not provide medical advice. Welcome back to the Functional Public Health Podcast. I am so excited today to be joined by Cassandra Elder and Karen Ojeda. Um, Cassandra Elder has she's the first midwife to work at UNC Rex and initial pioneer of City of Oaks Midwifery in Raleigh, North Carolina. She has been a midwife for five years and had been a labor and delivery nurse for 25 years prior to that. Karen is the second midwife to join the UNC Rex healthcare system and also a pioneer of City of Oaks midwifery. She has a doctorate in nursing and has been a nurse for 10 years. So welcome Karen and Cassandra. I'm so excited to have you guys here today. Thank you. Thank you. And so April is C-section awareness month. So I'm really excited to talk to you both more about C-sections and then VBACs as well. I think, um, I'm going to learn a lot from this and I think our listeners will learn a lot too. Um, I know C-sections are super common and I think a lot of, um, people just don't really understand kind of everything that goes into it. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Um, so what I'd love to start with is just, um, if you guys could kind of tell me like the process of a C-section, all the layers that need to be cut through, and then also the process for closing that incision. Super. So I'll start with that first part of that question. Hi everyone. Uh, this is Karen speaking. So when dealing with the C-section, it is quite a process, even though the the procedure can be fairly quick. Um, it, it is many layers I have to go through. So it's typically seven layers. So we go through the skin, the fat, the recti, rectus sheet, which is the coating outside of the abs, then the actual rectus, which is known as the abs. Um, then we have the parietal um, peritoneum, which is the first layer surrounding the organs, then the loose peritoneum, and then we reach finally the uterus prior to reaching to baby. Um, and this is a very, the, the uterus is a, the thicker, uh, or the thickest of the muscular layers. Uh, when it comes to closing, Cassandra will take over that aspect. <laughs> they, um, the, so the uterine incision is, t- is typically done um, in the lowest part of the, the uterus in the, in the lower third called the lower uterine segment. Um, that's ideally where it's placed, and that is to afford women an opportunity to try to have a vaginal birth in the future should they um, want to do that. Um, so for, an, and then what's recommended now is that the, the that the uterus is closed um, with two layers. Um, in the past, the um, physician training was um, they would just close that 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 opening, or they call it the hysterotomy, with just one um, layer of suturing and now they do um, do it with two layers of suturing which provides um, better healing and a stronger scar for for later on and then they kind of they just kind of back their way out essentially and the but the closing up is a lot quicker than the going through and they don't have to um, take quite as much like with the with like with the rectus um, the abdominal muscles they 
once the uterus is placed back into the abdomen, everything just kind of closes nicely. Sometimes they'll put a, a suture or two to bring that together. I know sometimes they don't because the, the uh, ideally the abdominal muscles, they should grow back together. But if occasionally when that doesn't happen, that's where you can get, you know, diast uh, you know a diastasis of those muscles. Um, and then they, um, after they do that, then they are closing the subcutaneous and then they close the skin last. Um, most of those layers, or all of those layers are closed with um, a suture material. And then depending on the, yeah, mm -hmm. the, uh, the facility where, wherever the, the patient is, they use different materials to close the skin, the skin incision. It could be anything from a metal staple. Now there are these really nice dissolvable staples that actually do a really nice job. I was, I was kind of pleasantly surprised when they started using them over here at Rex. Um, and then there's different suture material. Um, if the woman, if there's any prior surgeries or if the woman um, has a lot of abdominal um, adipose, you know, if the subcutaneous layer is, is thicker, they may need to put some, you know, reinforcement, um, some additional suturing in there. Mm -hmm. um, but that's the, the closing part goes a, a lot quicker um, mm -hmm. than, the, than the, the getting into, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's a lot of layers to get through right. Till we get to baby. Um, you know, I, I think that's maybe one thing that a lot of people don't realize is just how many layers you have to get to, or have to go through to get to the uterus. Um, and then also that they're, they're closing the uterus and as well as the skin. So there's multiple, sounds like kind of multiple, um, you know, closures. And well, and one, and just one thing of note, what we just, just described to you is a is a C-section of a first-time mom or somebody who's never had any abdominal surgery where the layers are very easily distinguishable. Mm -hmm. um, if, a, if a woman has had surgeries before, um, that may not be the case, may not be the case, um, you know, and there's no way to know um, as to what amount of scar tissue a woman is going to develop after after um, her C-section. I've seen, I'll never forget, I had this one patient years ago at Duke and she had had, she was on her seventh C-section and she didn't have any scar tissue in her belly. It was the most amazing wow. thing. And then I've seen women, you know, with like just two C-sections and the layers all be so fused together that, that just the adhesion was just so terrible that it was, you know, an extremely complicated, um, you know, surgery. So, mm -hmm. The fact that um, depending on how many surgeries one has had, and um, that's you know it's, that's really a C-section. This Dr. Shah, Dr. Neil Shah, who's this fantastic um, OBGYN from um, out of I believe it's from Harvard, um, he made a point that a C-section is the only like surgical procedure that anybody like they you go in at the same incision over and over and over again, mm -hmm. depending on how you know. Um, women want to grow their families. And so, um, you know, it, it can be done, you know, many, many, many times. Um, but of course, with each C-section, um, there is, you know, increased risk associated with that um, because it's, it's multiple surgeries. Right. Yeah. And that makes sense. And that's why one thing um, with my C-section moms that I treat, I'm like, you, you know, we have to work on your scar and work on the scar tissue. And, you know, especially, you know, hopefully you don't have to have another one, but if you do like, you know, it definitely can um, impact that and impact, you know, just other function too. So um, that's really interesting that someone with seven C-sections actually had no scar tissue. That's amazing. That was amazing. <laughs> um, yeah. 
So um, typically the incision in the uterus is going to be a horizontal incision, but I know sometimes a vertical incision or more of a J type incision would need to be made. And um, what would be the indication for doing that? That is more indicated for preterm birth. So if it's um, a baby that's maybe 23, 24 weeks, um, maybe until like, what, maybe, maybe till 30 weeks or so. It, it, just, it also depends on fetal size because if mm -hmm. the uterus is not grown sufficiently to develop a lower, that lower third or that lower uterine segment, then they could do, you know, a, they could do, it could be horizontal, but it could be higher up and not in that lower third where it's considered a low transverse. Mm -hmm. If it's vertical, then I'll, you know, that is, can be kind of different places on, on, on the uterus to just, but it's typically kind of right smack dab in the middle, depending on how big, just depending on how big the uterus is and that. Um, and then there's one, in, there's one, an additional, there's a combo incision where there's a horizontal and then where they go up where they call it team, the uterus. And that is not done routinely. Um, and the vertical incision is something that is typically done um, only truly, truly, truly when necessary um, because it is a higher risk um, uh, scar for future pregnancies. And um, anytime you, any, whenever there is a scar that is not a lower uterine segment, the horizontal lower uterine segment scar, then um, that typically is not um, uh, not recommended that women attempt a, v, a, a VBAC with any mm -hmm. other scar on their uterus besides a lower uterine segment, um, mm -hmm. horizontal scar. Gotcha. Um, so it's, yeah, sounds like that's more rare, but could potentially you know, be something that's needed. Mm -hmm. And so what are just the, the most common indications for planned C-sections? So, um, there's a few, for example, breach presentation. So if um, that OB practice um, does not do vaginal um, breach deliveries, then a, 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 a C-section for breach presentation would be unnecessary. Placenta previas are basically when the placenta is covering that cervix. Um, is not safe for uh, vaginal delivery. So that would merit also a cesarean section. And also depending on the practice, fetal macrosomia, or if the baby has reached a certain um, a, a weight, um, nine and a half pounds, 10 pounds, 10 and a half pounds, legally, it's something that's offered to, to each woman to have the chance of having a C-section um, versus having a vaginal delivery. Mm -hmm. And then as far as emergency C-sections, what do you usually see causing this? Well, it can be many causes. It, um, you know, one of the main things is the passenger. So we talk about um, the passenger as being the baby. So if for some reason the baby um, is in distress or the cord is, is let's say, we don't know until the baby's born, of course, but if the mm -hmm. cords are around, tied around the baby's neck or the baby's body and there's recurrent decelerations, or if a, a couple of times I've heard, not from our practice per se, but practices uh, from stories in itself, like 
people come in into labor and delivery and the baby's heart rate's very, very low, um, that needs to have a stat C-section um, when the baby's heart rate's say like 50s or 60s, or let's say a mama's water breaks and the cord is in between her legs and that presents first rather than the baby's head, that would merit to have an urgent cesarean section too. So there's mm -hmm. a couple of reasons why an, uh, an immediate or urgent uh, C-section can, mm -hmm. Can, needs to be called for mm -hmm. and then so as far as sorry like a placental infection or or bleeding profusely mm -hmm. as well can merit for those scenarios yeah um so sounds like definitely can be a variable lots of different things you know kind of variable causes and then as far as inductions um so with my son i had an induction i was told um you know, that, that was going to be a higher risk of a C-section. Um, I had the induction because my husband was deployed and, you know, wanted to have the baby while he was home. And of course they're like, you know, tell me that risk about C-sections. And I'm like, ah, that's, that's not gonna happen to me, <laughs> but it did, um, you know, which is okay. We're all healthy and, um, he's good, but can you just kind of talk about why with inductions there, you know, could be a higher risk of needing that emergency C-section? Sure, and me Sanders can share this question, but a lot of it has to do with how your body's prepared, you know, if, if your body has been ripened enough or not. Um, also the interventions technically and logistically, when you look at data and research, the more intervention a woman needs to have in order to prepare or, you know, guide or push her body to go into labor, you know, other implications can arise or it could be like a domino effect. So technically the more interventions does increase a woman potentially having a cesarean section. Mm -hmm. and, and, there, and there's also, um, you know, when we talk about inductions, we're not talking about just as quote, in a, you know, there's kind of a, there's ongoing, you know, conversation and I still say a bit of controversy within the obstetric world about the utility of, you know, elective inductions, but, you know, inductions are, are in kind of two categories. If they're not elective, then they're medical. And so um, a lot of times, you know, you know, if a woman develops preeclampsia and she's preterm, her body has not finished that, you know, that, that ready, you know, that ripening process towards the end. And so it's going to make that induction, you know, a lot more challenging as well as, um, the fact that she's now developed a complication, which can affect the placenta. And so anything that can negatively affect the health of, of the placenta will impact, you know, is going to likely impact the, the success of the induction. Um, and so and that could even be an example of say somebody going like, well, well, like well beyond their due date. Um, because this is a conversation that we have, you know, you know, very frequently you know, healthy women, healthy pregnancies, um, uncomplicated, it's, it's perfectly fine for them to go up to 42 weeks with appropriate, um, you know, prenatal care and testing. Um, however, um, and you know, nobody knows exactly, you know, where that date is where, you know, placental function begins to, to decrease. I mean, there's been a lot of study on it. And so we know around, you know, 41 weeks, the, the placenta, the function begins to decline, but it's really different for every woman and we have to look at them individually. Mm -hmm. And um, what I, when I'm talking to women um, about inductions for a medical indication, I'm really kind of speaking specifically for like going well beyond their due date. 
um, you know, number one, we want them to be comfortable and we want them to feel like that they have their choices. But, you know, our ultimate goal is, besides keeping them healthy and safe, is to try to keep them out of the operating room. And um, even, the, but if I, 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 I really like to, for them to be, you know, around like 41, not, not going much beyond like 41 and three, 41 and four. I do think 41 and three um, is kind of a sweet spot for a lot of women um, where they just need that little, you know, they need a little more time that they're not quite ready at 41 weeks. They need a few more days. But when you hit that 42 week mark, you know, it does give, you know, it does give you pause because there's a lot of things that, that we could do to keep a, you know, to, to improve a woman's chances of a vaginal delivery as long as the placental function is good. And if it's begun to deteriorate, then, you know, sometimes that, that makes it a lot more difficult. It's not that her body, meaning that the baby won't fit because there's a fit issue, but then there's also, is that placenta right. going to hold up long enough to tolerate labor? You, like, yeah, the mom can be like healthy and the baby can be healthy, like sitting, not in labor, but then you throw labor on top of that and contractions every two minutes and a not so great placenta. Um, then that can actually make it much more difficult. Um, and so that's, that's just one of many reasons why. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that definitely makes sense. And, um, you know, it sounds like you, you try to look at each individual mom too, and kind of their situation, which I think is, is super important as well. Yeah. Um, because, we, because we, I mean, particularly with inductions and, and C-sections too, but particularly with inductions, um, we know that if a woman is scared and she is not informed as to what's going on with the process, that in and of itself can affect um, the labor process. And because mm -hmm. if you're stressed, you know, your body is in a fight or flight response and it's not gonna be as receptive to, to the things that we're gonna need, need to do or recommend to do to try to get her into labor. And so it's really working with the, the family and, and the woman to, for her to be comfortable with her, with the decisions. And I, and I, um, what I say to women is, you know, it may not be the, the two choices that we ideally want for you, but there's always two choices and, mm -hmm. you know, we will make a recommendation, but the woman, she's, she's got to, she's got to be the one to choose. And, um, we want her to feel comfortable choosing her choices mm -hmm. and it's not our job to tell her what to do. Like, it's our job to explain the risks, the benefits, and the alternatives and give her a, a, a clinical recommendation with an appropriate rationale, but then she has to make that decision so that she can feel comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so important. And I know, um, for a lot of women, you know, sometimes with their birth experience, they sort of feel like things were done to them or, you know, they didn't have a choice. So I think that's, um, awesome. You know, that you guys take that approach of, we're going to give you a recommendation and all the information, but we want you to feel comfortable with your decision. Cause I think, um, you know, that can, can kind of have lasting effects, you know, or some trauma associated with it, which kind of brings me into uh, my next question. So, um, a lot of times with C-sections, especially ones that were unplanned, there can be some trauma and a lot of emotions, you know, surrounding that, especially if you were not planning on giving birth that way. So is there anything that you found to be helpful for moms who may be coping with some trauma or just emotions kind of around their experience? So I, I'm not sure about other practices, but us as um, our City of Oaks um, group, um, we have 
made the decision of having moms come in um, earlier on from their six week postpartum visit. And we sort of have like a huddle. Uh, of course, we assess the incision, see how she's feeling overall, but emotionally also um, answering questions that she might have now that she has time to digest everything that you know has gone through. Um, answering questions she might have about decisions and 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 outcomes and whatnot. And I think that's a, that's a good layer to start at. There's also postpartum support groups that help um, moms cope through postpartum anxiety or depression um, or have gone through C-sections as well and in relating to someone that has gone through an experience, whether it's a planned cesarean section or a C-section that um, had to be urgently you know, called for, um, there are support groups for those type of mommies. Um, we did have a support group here, but because of COVID, um, that sort of um, was unfortunately pushed pushed to the side, but hopefully in the near future, we can bring that back. That'd be awesome. And that helped a lot with healing process for mommies that potentially had to have a cesarean section to um, what else? Um, I also think that um, in really, really particularly we're probably this conversation and this concern is usually for first, first time, first pregnancies. And, you know, talking through their birth, you know, birth preferences, plan, goals, you know, whatever, you know, the individual wants to call the, the essentially the birth plan, because um, we, we want to touch on the, how does that, how, what is, the, what, are the, what is their communication style? And because, you know, we'll, we have some birth plans that, um, you know, for, you know, women that don't want like an epidural and they say, someone will like, do not mention pain medicines to me don't offer it to me but other women may say if you think i if if, if you, you can you, you can recommend it to me but and talk to me you know through what are my options and then you can give me your recommendation so it really depends on communication style because what we what we try to do is establish a good trusting relationship in the clinic so that if an if an if a true emergency arises where there's not going to be time to sit there and go through everything that if we look at them and we say, we're recommending a C-section, I'm calling the doctor and this is why that they, that they trust, they, they trust that recommendation. Um, mm -hmm. And then coming back full circle, like in the hospital and going over play by play, like what happened? Do you have questions? And then just like what Karen said, kind of coming back, because even if there's just such gaps and, and, all of our memories, you know, after the birth of our kids and, you know, even under the best of circumstances, there are these big chunks of time and time is so distorted. And they are in delivery. Yeah. It goes really, really yeah. quick. Either really, really quick or really, really slow. And, yes. there's, also, and, there, and there's also like this misunder, um, a perception of what is an emergency C-section versus what is not an emergency C-section because you can have an unscheduled C-section. You can have an urgent C-section and then there's a true emergency, true, right. true, true emergency. And, um, but trying to keep it calm and just because it's an emergency does not mean chaos. And mm -hmm. I think that, and I, and I learned this, you know, after, you know, many years of being a labor and delivery nurse that the best, you know, some, sometimes even the scariest moments um, in the, with C-sections 
um, with when you had like just that, you know, I say the A team, you went into work and you knew that you were working with the A team that day, that it was calm. Nobody was yelling. It was, everybody had their role. Everybody knew what they were doing. And it wasn't this, you know, chaotic sense. And that also keeps, also yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, a patient in labor and delivery can receive anxiety very quickly. And they hear everything. They hear everything. So that adds on to, you know, the emotional roller coaster that they may be going through emotionally. Yeah. So I agree with you, Sandra. And, and, and for our patients, um, because, you know, they are coming to midwives and we're not physicians and we're not surgeons, nor do we want, do we want to be, <laughs> um, <laughs> And is that we go back with them to during the C-section. We don't just leave them. be like, here, go, got to sign you out yeah. now. You know, um, we go back with them to maintain that continuity of care and um, check on them in recovery. And that is, you know, that because that is probably the scariest and most vulnerable time for that woman is when she's being rolled down the hallway and, and she's and you know, her, her partner or support person gets put in a side room and they're not allowed to come into the OR until you know they have their anesthesia and they're on the table and all the things and there's just so much that's happening and just it is just such a vulnerable and lonely time but we're there to fill that gap you yeah, know and, that's and great that you know it is really powerful for a lot of women um especially and especially even for our moms or that are having repeat c-sections that had you know, like a really scary one the first time and knew and you know needed a, a repeat um just having that that true gentle cesarean experience where things are calm and the presence of um you know and us there for continuity it has just it's it's it's, it's good stuff it's really yeah. it's really important for their healing yeah 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 that's so great i think um yeah i think you you all have an awesome practice and, um, have put some really good things in place. And I love that you're bringing moms back a little bit sooner than six weeks and going over what happened. Cause I agree, you know, you, when you're in the hospital, it's just time is, is so warped and, you know, you can ask questions then, but you may not remember, or, you know, things can move really fast. And so being able to go back over what happened and why, and why these decisions were made, um, I'm sure is very helpful for a lot of moms, especially when they're, you know, thinking a little bit clearer, you know, maybe still a little sleep deprived, but, um, you know, they can kind of process everything a little bit more. So I think but, that's but, awesome. And, and just one more thing on that note. I mean, I don't know if you, I'm, sure, I'm sure this has happened to you too, but I've even had women coming back like at their woman annual, like a year later. Um, and just sort of had lingering questions because there were things that they forgot yeah. mm-hmm. and because or the or whoever was their support person that was with them they saw something or heard something and it created this like what really happened kind of thing so I mean we've gone over you know opened up their chart and gone over the whole labor curve if it was you know an unscheduled or urgent emergency section and walked them through all of that to help them you know fill those voids of time because if not they, they're going to fill it with something in their head and we want it to be the correct information and accurate and not something that's distorted or scary Mm -hmm. and so yeah for them to have like maternal guilt too right yeah right yeah Yeah. Yeah. definitely yeah that's awesome um so let's go ahead and we'll switch gears a little bit and i want to talk about vbac so for anyone listening that doesn't know um the term vbac stands for vaginal birth after cesarean um so as far as a woman having a VBAC, um, I'd love if you could just first start by, um, 
kind of talking about how you determine if someone is going to be a good candidate. Absolutely. So we have to start from the basics first, understanding why she had that cesarean section, right? Um, it was it um, that the passenger, that the baby wasn't able to fit. Is it that her pelvis is in a distinct shape or size that she cannot successfully um, have a vaginal delivery? Um, and sometimes that can be determined very quickly and very easily once they have the cesarean section. Um, I had a doctor once, um, maybe about two years ago, he ended up doing a cesarean section um, for one of our mamas and she ended up having like a super clear, like super obvious, like heart-shaped um, uh, pelvis. And he's like, and, and it was so narrow. And she's like, no matter what size of a babe, like she would not be able to deliver successfully vaginally. So that's very resourceful and helpful. And also knowing um, the operative note from from that cesarean section. So whether it's a mama, um, you know, that transferring care to us that wants to be back, she technically would need to have the operative note as well. So we can review from top to bottom that operative note and see exactly why was the reason for the cesarean section. Is there anything obvious um, that she would not be a safe candidate for a VBAC? Because we might have a you know, our heart would be 100% in wanting to be a VBAC, but essentially you might not be a safe candidate for you. And then you put yourself at risk and your baby at risk too. And also going back on Cassandra's note of the uterus, making sure that that uterus was sutured twice um, in order to feel more um, like us as a practice, feel more secure and, and, and comfortable and accepting her as a VBAC candidate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I know that there are kind of VBAC calculators where you can, you know, put information in and it'll mm -hmm. spit out a percentage of um, success. Do you yeah. use those in your practice? Do you feel like they're accurate? Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that question. So we do use that calculator as a baseline. It is not the do all give all because there's more to a story than the few categories that that VBAC calculator provides. It adds um, age, which is helpful. Um, it does the BMI, which is also very resourceful um, because it depends on the, on a woman's BMI also how successful we can have um, a, a VBAC as well. So that's one of the, also one of the other categories that us as City of Oaks, we, um, we view very diligently when a mommy comes over and wants to have a VBAC. How much weight has she gained throughout the pregnancy too? It makes a big difference. How large as our passengers, our passenger much bigger than our than a, the first baby or where you had the, the C-section too. Um, but going back to the question of the VBAC calculator, um, it also asks like, um, was the, the, was the patient ever able to have a vaginal delivery prior to having a C-section too? So as, for example, having a vaginal delivery, then having a C-section, and as she had in her third pregnancy, she trying to have a vaginal delivery. Mm -hmm. um, because that would increase your points per, you know, if you've had a vaginal delivery prior to, um, and, but it doesn't, you know, factors that it doesn't come in and, and into place is the baby's position was the baby OP or occiput posterior and, and mommy's labors can be very long because of how the passenger was situated in her pelvis mm -hmm. too. Um, was it a, a, you know, preterm birth or, or not? There's just so many factors of was she ripened adequately prior to the induction process? For example, if it was like a failed induction, mm -hmm. uh, 
so it's a good baseline and we do use it, but it's not the, the give all do all for us to determine if she's a, a, a good safe VBAC candidate. Mm-hmm. Helpful, yeah. it's a good resource, but it's not, you know, what we use only, yeah. only that tool for determination. Right. Yeah. So it sounds like you'll use it kind of gives you an idea, yeah. but then you're also looking at other things too. You're not going to, you know, say, oh, this said only 30%. So Correct. you're just doomed. <laughs> you know? Correct. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. Um, and so I've heard of providers sometimes setting up stipulations or kind of requirements for VBACs. Like, you know, you have to go into labor by 38 weeks, or, um, you know, if your water breaks, you have to deliver the baby by X amount of time. Is that, um, you know, something that you are routinely, you know, putting into place, or I'm sure it's very, you know, patient dependent too, and kind of what's going on with them. But, um, I'm just curious if there's usually any stipulations like that around VBACs. Um, so there, so there is, um, with every woman, um, then depending on her risk factors and what's going on with her pregnancy, um, there is um, always, you know, a standard or a, a recommendation for quote delivery timing, and so that's where this becomes, you know, can be, you know, hard conversations, um, because if you are otherwise healthy and have had an uncomplicated pregnancy, then fantastic, and um, you know. She can go to 42 weeks and with, again, with appropriate testing um, and to optimize her chances to go into, to, to go into spontaneous mm-hmm. labor on her own. Um, that's technically be more successful. Because that's technically when she'll be more successful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so if there is a stipulation within a, you know, within a practice that they, you know, if they don't go into labor on their own by X date, then what? Um, and um, I'm not going to get into in, inducing VBACs right now. At this, at, at this point, that's, that's a topic for another, another, yeah. another, 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 another podcast. Another um, podcast. <laughs> um, but then where it does get really sticky is when you have um, a, an individual that is, has a, a risk factor or a complication that warrants that where there's a recommendation that she is delivered the, like before her due date. And that's mm-hmm. where the, the biggie is that they don't have as much leeway. Now, for example, like she had a, a first baby a cesarean section and with the second baby she has gestational diabetes mm-hmm. that's um uncontrolled with diet and exercise and needs to have things like insulin or or oral medicine and technically is a recommendation to deliver a little bit sooner than 39 weeks honestly with uncontrolled blood sugars for mom because that's unhealthy for her too yeah. so for example that's one of the yeah. Many examples. Blood pressure is the other biggie. And then um, women that are 40 or older, um, that one is so that in just about all, many of those recommendations are like delivery between 39 and 40 weeks. Mm -hmm. Now, again, this, I, this also goes back to um, looking at like what exactly is going on with that woman at that time. And, you know, she, we don't want to be reckless and we want, we want patients to, that are, that we have like a really good, you know, a good relationship with. But um, I can think of specifically a couple of moms that were 40 plus having their first babies, but extremely healthy. I mean, they were, they worked out, they were not overweight. They like truly their age was their only risk factor. And, um, you know, we told them that, you know, the 
that the clinical recommendation is that women that are 40 or older, it's recommended that they are delivered by their, their due date. However, nobody's going to hold them down and drag them to the hospital and force them to have an induction. And so, you know, we had to, you know, we have to give that information, but we, in, in two cases, they um, said that they did not feel comfortable being induced at 40, you know, going into the hospital at 39 weeks and six days and starting an induction. They said, you know, just give me a few more days, just give me a few more days. And we said, okay, just as long as we're very clear that you understand the recommendation and the rationale why and the, and the risks associated with it, we did appropriate, you know, we did additional testing. And um, I think in, in both of those cases, they, both women went into labor in just a couple of days. So, um, you know, it's the practice of medicine. It's not like cookbook, you know, right. um, but, but I will also say, and, you know, we also, you know, there are rules that we have to follow that we're obligated and that we have to explain the risks of why these, you know, where these recommendations came from, because there is clinical data to support the recommendations because, you know, in those cases, things work out fantastic. And I still believe in like the process of all of that and how we work with women, but, you know, there is a slightly increased, let's say specifically for women that are over 40, there's a slightly increased chance of a stillbirth going beyond 40 weeks. Although the, the chances of that are of happening is still extremely low. And, um, but it still is a, a higher chance than anybody, than, than those that are under 40. But if it happens to you, it's 100% is what I say. So, you know, when we're talking about, when, when we're going through these recommendations and women are not comfortable with the, the standard, you know, best practice clinical guidelines, and they want to, and they're asking for, you know, something other than that, you know, it was our due diligence to yeah. give her the information to empower her, right. make sure she doesn't do um, a negligent choice because of, you know, her thoughts and, and then not having given her that information to have made a more educational choice, right? We want to make sure that she's comfortable and empowered with her choice and, 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 um, and yeah, makes a, makes a wise decision for herself and her baby. I mean, yeah. just, just understanding like the information and like, and where their decisions are coming from, you mm -hmm. know? So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think that makes sense, you know, and it sounds like there's definitely a few things to consider and, you know, you want to make sure medically mom and baby are taken care of. So, um, certainly can be patient dependent, but as long as, you know, mom feels, comfortable, um, with the decisions. I think that's, you know, kind of the theme of this, <laughs> making sure, um, you know, you have all the information and then, um, making that informed choice. So, or, um, or, or informed refusal, right? Exactly. <laughs> that's important, yes. right? And, yeah. I, and, and, and like that, that is a better, like descriptor as opposed to against medical advice. <laughs> right. Right. It's that, you know, these, you know, I trust that the women, you know, the women that we work with and it, like we, at this, by the time we get to those conversations, you know, we, there's a good trusting relationship and, and they're, and they, and we truly believe that they have, because we have like gone through everything very mm -hmm. in depth over and over and over again, you know, not in like a, a derogatory way or combative or, you know, demeaning or, you know, treating them like treating anybody like children, children but just reiterating the information um, and that, that if they do do something differently and they don't, they decline, um, you know, that, that, you know, whatever that, that standard is and, and, you know, 
we've and we've come to a consensus well okay if you don't want to be induced at 40 weeks then okay then we our consensus is you understand the risks and we have a consensus that um if you've not gone into labor by 40 weeks in three days that you're comfortable with that and then that's an informed refusal right. um so yeah 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 definitely i like i like that term too so my last question here is, um, if there's anything a mom can do, if she thinks she would like to do a VBAC, um, so first of all, is there anything she can do kind of right after that first C-section or, you know, potentially second, um, and then once she is pregnant again, is there anything really like that you can do? Um, you know, I, obviously if it's pelvis shape. We can't really change that, but, um, you know, if it was more the passenger, you know, baby's heart rate was dropping something like that. What could mom do number one don't get pregnant immediately <laughs> you gotta make sure <laughs> two you years. two years yeah like self-heal because you need to heal externally as well as internally and you don't want a future pregnancy to come and plant itself in this internally in the incision scar right um also go to pt <laughs> yes yes i love that recommendation <laughs> Make sure you get your baseline, um, your foundation checked first. We need to make sure that mama gets back, you know, in her in her feet and that she's doing well physically before having an endeavor of another pregnancy. Um, making sure that she keeps track of, of her weight and her exercise and, and trying to be as healthy as she can be um, for her and her family and her future family too. Um, what else? Having an open discussion with her specific provider, again, to make sure that she's a good, safe candidate for, for VBAC, so that way she can start prepping for, you know, for that future adventure too. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I think, I think that, I mean, the same things are true for a VBAC is just with any labor and birth is that you are preparing your body for a feat of endurance and, um, and it is, it is, you know, it is the equivalent of, you know, running like an Ironman or, you know, climbing Mount, Ever you're climbing Mount Everest or whatever. And, you know, it's, it, you know, we, on a regular basis, we have women coming to us that had babies at other places. And um, I can think of one patient in particular, and she put on like, with her first baby, something like 80 pounds in her wow. first pregnancy. And she said, no one ever talked to her about her weight gain and how, you know, the detrimental effect that that was going to be. Um, and I, it's a joke in the clinic. I hate discussing weight. I hate it. It makes, it makes me so uncomfortable because, you know, we, we know BMI is not like a perfect number. And, but the reality is, is that if you gain a lot of weight, it's going to make your pregnancy more difficult because it's going to increase your risk of gestational diabetes and hypertension, all that kind of stuff. And also anatomically, right? You're putting a lot of pressure yeah. in that uterus, in that passenger and it's going to be more difficult for things to maneuver swiftly and smoothly. So I, it is a hard conversation. I love having that conversation because I, 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 I feel like it's, it's a way of me loving on my patients. And, and it is a hard conversation, but it's also a way of finding, being tactful and, 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 and having that conversation because then later on, then you leave her gaining 80 pounds and then you did a disservice for her, right? Right. Uh, nipping it in the butt, bud, not butt, nipping <laughs> in the bud earlier on and, and probably saving her from a cesarean section in the first place. Um, yeah. Just health wellness, you know, not if there were things that 
that she could have on that could have been done differently you know because from a you know because they're coming to us for as maybe a different provider um to potentially do things differently but um but we will also go back and you know we'll look at their records and if we have access to them and um you know it is very easy for us to play monday morning quarterback when looking back at it, it outside charting um and it's not it's not necessarily i don't want to say have i seen some terrible things yeah i have i mean just the reality is i i have read stuff that my mouth is just like are you kidding me um but sometimes there are things that I look back, I'm like, you know, I can see, you know, where they were coming from and why they were doing what they were doing. And yeah, I might would have done something differently, but what they did wasn't wrong. Um, it's, you know, you're doing, you're making decisions in real time with the information in front of you, like not looking back retrospectively. That being said, though, it is still good data to have of, of what did happen. And then just looking at their, their health and their wellness during their, their previous pregnancy and just trying to optimize their health the best that they can. And so, you know, um, yeah, weight and blood pressure, diabetes, all those things, um, mm -hmm. and the psyche too, because if they're, if they were afraid, if they had not, if they had unresolved things, or if they're bringing like, you know, some PTSD type symptoms into this pregnancy, um, we, we do like early intervention with sending people for, you know, for counseling therapy, um, and really trying to address all that stuff very early because, you know, by the time you get to your 36, 37 weeks, it's a little too late, you know? Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Nice. That's awesome. And that's, I think really good information. And, um, I think should be really empowering to a lot of women that there are things that they can do. And, you know, especially like you said, if during their first pregnancy, you know, and talk to them about weight or health, like those are all things that it's never too late to start, you know? eating healthier, exercising. So I think that's awesome that there's definitely things that you can change that you're in control of that can affect your outcomes. Um, well, Karen and Cassandra, thank you so much for talking with me. I learned a lot. I think other people will too. Um, so I really enjoyed it and I just really appreciate your time. No, thank I appreciate you for thinking of us and um, having us join you in, in this podcast. It's really cool. I hope we can do it in the near future again. This is my, yeah. first, this is my first podcast. <laughs> nice. Yay. That's exciting. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you guys again. Perfect. Thanks so much for listening to the Functional Pelvic Health Podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode.